Good evening. Closing arguments in the trial of Ahmed Arbery, a new term for Jerome Powell in 58 years since the JFK assassination. What have we learned? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, November 22nd, 2021. And President Joe Biden said today he's nominating Jerome Powell for a second four-year term as Federal Reserve Chair. It's an endorsement of Powell based on the Fed's ultra-low interest rate policies. The president says it's about bipartisanship in divided times, as he praised Powell, who he called by the nickname Jay. Some will no doubt question why I'm renominating Jay when he was the choice of a Republican predecessor. Why am I not picking a Democrat? Why am, I, why am I not picking fresh blood or taking the Fed in a different direction? Put directly, at this moment both of a both enormous potential and enormous uncertainty for our economy, we need stability and independence at the Federal Reserve. Jay has proven the independence that I value in the Federal Chair, in the, in the Fed Chair. In the last administration, he stood up to unprecedented political interference and doing so successfully maintain the integrity and credibility of this institution. And that's the president earlier today. Next year, the Fed is widely expected to begin raising its benchmark interest rate with financial markets pricing it, it pricing in at at least two increases. I guess that's Wall Street Journal talk. If it may, if it moves too slowly, inflation may accelerate, forcing the Fed, America's central bank, to take draconian steps later to rein it in, potentially causing a recession. But if the Fed hike, hikes rates those rates too quickly, it could choke off hiring and the recovery. It's a balancing act. President Joe Biden, meanwhile, uh, went on to announce plans, uh, this was on Friday, to nominate two members to the United States Postal Service Board of Governors, a possible first step in removing Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump appointee obsessed with cutting back America's two-century-old postal service. DeJoy became a political lightning rod during the 2020 elections as changes he made to the Postal Service slowed delivery times during a key period when voters were trying to mail in their ballots, although the cutback had no effect on mail-in voting. The author of the book, Preserving the People's Post Office is Christopher Shaw. He tells WBAI the unexpected decision to place two board members to replace two Board of Governors members is a positive development. You had a very short staff operation that became even more that way because a lot of employees were isolating or, or ill uh, due to COVID-19. So this year they've taken steps, um, bringing on some new employees, getting some new facilities up and running that are supposed to make things uh, run more smoothly. But there's this ongoing issue here with uh, Postmaster General uh, DeJoy reducing services and trying to operate this enterprise, the U.S. Postal Service, like a business instead of like the public service, uh, which it is. What's DeJoy been up to lately? On October 1st, he slowed down mail nationwide, so a first-class letter that used to take three days to get from one coast to the other is now five days. So this is a major change in terms of how the Postal Service operates and impacting millions of Americans with slower mail. Is there a war going on between Amazon and FedEx and the rest of these folks and the U.S. Postal Service and the government? You have a situation where a lot of time these private delivery companies will actually rely on the Postal Service to deliver to those remote addresses, those unprofitable addresses, and that is literally tens of millions of people in this country. It took a while for President Biden to move. He finally, why has there been a seeming uh, a disconnect between 
what's happening and the impact that it have on most Americans and the president's slow motion on this. The president has to wait until there are openings on the Board of Governors and try to get in people who will be more interested in operating it like a public service instead of a business. And so that's what he's done with these two new nominations. Hopefully they will be interested in pushing back against some of these operational changes that the joy has put in place. What are these two guys? What, how do we know that they're okay as far as preserving? Well, we don't have a, a guarantee, but presumably they were, they were vetted. I mean, one thing is that Board of Governors has to be bipartisan. It has to have Republicans and Democrats. And so we have one Democrat and one Republican. Tell us about, wasn't he being investigated? The joy's background is he's a trucking executive. And he's also a Republican uh, Party funder. Uh, so that's where he's coming from. And there is an ongoing FBI investigation that has to do with uh, potentially illegal fundraising activities. Does he have a term limit? He can be there as long as the Board of Governors decides to keep him there. The question now is with these two new governors coming on, Maybe he will be leaving because they may decide to look for new leadership or possible he could stay. And that is Christopher Shaw. He's the author of the book Preserving the People's Post Office. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said at Friday's news briefing, the administration is deeply troubled by reports of DeJoy's potential financial conflicts of interest and takes serious issues with the job he's doing running the Postal Service. DeJoy has been under investigation by the FBI for alleged campaign finance violations. And Waukesha, Wisconsin's police chief says the SUV driver who plowed into a Christmas parade in suburban Milwaukee, killing at least five people and injuring 48, was leaving the scene of a domestic dispute that had taken place just minutes earlier. And that was the sound of the parade. Two children are reported to be critically injured. Police Chief Dan Thompson said there was no evidence of bloodshed Sunday was a terrorist attack or that the suspect, Daryl Brooks Jr., knew anyone in the parade. Brooks acted alone, the chief said. 4.39 p.m. on Sunday, November 21st, 2021, a lone subject intentionally drove his maroon SUV through barricades into a crowd of people that was celebrating the Waukesha Christmas Parade, which resulted in killing five individuals and injuring 48 additional individuals. I just received information that uh, two of the 48 are children and they're in critical condition. We have information that the suspect prior to the incident was involved in a domestic disturbance, which was just minutes prior and the suspect left that scene just prior to our arrival uh, to that domestic uh, disturbance. When the suspect was driving through into the crowd, one officer did discharge his firearm and fired shots at the suspect to stop uh, the threat, but due to the amount of people had to stop um, and uh, stop and fire no did not fire any other additional shots. The officer is on administrative leave as part of the department protocol. No one was injured as a result of the officer firing uh, his discharge and his fire weapon, firearm. The subject was taken into custody a short distance from the scene, and we are confident he acted alone. There is no evidence that this is a terrorist incident. I want to dispel some rumors. There is no pursuit that led up to this incident. 
This is not a terrorist event. And that is the um, Chief Johnson of the Waukesha, Wisconsin Police Department. As he just explained, Brooks, 39, of Milwaukee, had left the site of the domestic disturbance before officers arrived and was not being chased by police at the time of the crash, according to the chief, who gave no further details on the dispute. And attorneys today offered their final words to the jury in the killing of Ahmed Arbery, with the prosecution saying that three white men chased him solely because he was a black man running down the street, and the defense repeatedly blaming Arbery for his own death. Outside the courthouse, various groups have been gathering to support Ar the Arbery family for the most part. During the trial, the defense tried to keep Reverends Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton for sitting in the courtroom, making a motion at the time for a mistrial. In response, more than 100 black pastors, along with Jewish rabbis and other spiritual leaders, stood beside the family of Ahmed Arbery outside the Glynn County Courthouse, civil rights attorney Ben Crump. The audacity to say who you can have come and give you spiritual comfort is offensive on every level. The fact that... They have to sit in that courtroom every day, Wanda silently weeping, Martin, Marcus cringing his teeth while they watch the killers of their child. They have to sit there every day. We need the preachers to come right. and pray that they keep their sanity for this insane situation, this inhumane killing of their child. And that's Ben Crump. Today, today, a decidedly different group marched, the radical and armed New Black Panther Party, and their leader spoke. As the divine scriptures say, and also all those brothers and sisters that come out the U.S. Armed Forces, that join forces in all the armed black groups in the hills of North America, we're not taking it no more. Black power. But inside the courtroom, Travis St. Michael's defense attorney, Kevin Goh, demanded another mistrial, claiming the defendants weren't safe. At least one of these groups, I believe it was the Black Panther group, is referenced in the motion filed this morning that their specific objective uh, was to influence the proceedings in this case. Um, I don't know whether they intended to scare the defendants, but I have co-counsel uh, with a small child who was scared to death. Um, large weapons, apparently automatic weapons, uh, were seen outside uh, the courthouse. Uh, and, you know, given everything else that's already transpired in this case, we believe at this point that it's appropriate for us to renew the motion for mistrial. This court has gone to great lengths to give these defendants a fair trial. Um, but the security precautions that were in place, despite the sheriff's best efforts and your honor's best efforts, and that's the attorney uh, for Travis McMichael, Kevin Goh. The argument, similar to the trial last week where Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, revolves around self-defense. Travis McMichael, one of the three defendants, took the stand in his own defense last week. He admitted Arbery made no attempt to seize his rifle as he stopped the unarmed man as he was jogging. And your response was, I want to say he did, but honestly, I cannot remember. I mean, we were, me and him were face to face the entire time. Do you remember saying that? Yes, and I was trying to think at that exact moment. Um, 
trying to give him, as, like I said, trying to give him as much detail as possible under the stress and of all this going on. Um, it was obvious that he had the gun from what I was saying in here, rereading it, that he had the weapon the way that I was describing it. Um, but why I said he did not have the gun at that second, I don't know why. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that's what I said. I, I want to say he did, but I honestly cannot remember. Defendant Travis McMichael on the stand last week. Prosecutor Linda Dinikowski argued that a person can't start trouble and then claim self-defense. If you are the initial unjustified aggressor, you don't get a claim self-defense. If you're committing a felony against somebody, you don't get a claim self-defense. And the third one is if you provoke somebody so that they defend themselves against you, and then you go, oh, look, he attacked me first. But you really were the one who was provoking the attack on yourself. You don't get a claim self-defense. And that's the law. And uh, that was the defense attorney making her summation today. A similar argument was made by the prosecutor in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that ended with Rittenhouse's acquittal for shooting three protesters last year. The prosecutor in the Rittenhouse case was Thomas Binger. When the defendant provokes the incident, he loses the right to self-defense. You cannot claim self-defense against a danger you create. That's critical right here. If you're the one who is threatening others, you lose the right to claim self-defense. Kenosha County Prosecutor Thomas Binger last week. But those arguments didn't dissuade defense attorney Laura Hogue, who represents defendant Greg McMichael, who filmed the deadly encounter. The verdict can change the grief of that future not realized. The hope that he could have turned himself around. Because all we can guess about the young man is that his teenage years were full of promise, but his early 20s just led him in the wrong direction. And that was an attempted character assassination by the uh, defense attorney, which is, of course, her right in trials like this to put the victim on trial, defense attorney Laura Hogue. And we'll be following this trial as it goes to the jury and, um, of course, reporting as soon as we know what the verdict is in this case. And finally, sort of a long story. It was 58 years ago today that an assassin or assassins assassinated John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States, the first Catholic president of the United States. He was on a two-day trip to Dallas and Fort Worth, where he was warmly, warmly welcomed, although many right-wingers, many fascists, many many uh, people who uh, were anti-democratic in the state of Texas had made threats and had spoken out against JFK as the president. Despite that, the people of Dallas and Fort Worth turned out and gave him a warm, warm uh, welcome. At his speech, uh, the day before he was killed, John F. Kennedy made a reference as his wife entered, his beautiful wife in a pink dress, Jackie Kennedy. She entered the uh, room and he revisited something he had said two years earlier. He mentions that when uh, he had accompanied, as he said, I was president of the United States, but I accompanied Mrs. Kennedy to Paris where a hostile sort of anti-American government, a government that was uh, not happy with United States foreign policy at the time under Charles de Gaulle, was expected to give the young president his comeuppance. It turned out behind his wife, he actually took Paris by storm. 
and he referred to that incident um, just hours before his death. Mrs. Kennedy's entrance draws another comment from the president. Two years ago, I said that, uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I wear. And nobody wonders what John, Jack and, uh, and Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, the vice president at the time of the United States, went on to become the president of the United States within 24 hours of that statement. The uh, naval, uh, the naval photo photographic agency, at the time, put together a film, and it's available on the internet. It's called "The Last Two Days," and it follows President Kennedy and his entourage's visit to Dallas and Fort Worth on the days before his assassination. Here are some clips of the day leading up to the assassination of President Kennedy. Aid begins the 11-mile ride to the Dallas Trademark, where the president is to deliver a major address. Governor and Mrs. Connolly ride in the presidential limousine. In a downtown building, a gunman waits at a six-floor window, a high-powered rifle by his side. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. We're here at the trademark. The motorcade is coming by here. I can see many, many motorcycles coming by now. Police motorcycles. Now, we know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man, Spread Eagle, over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. At this point, it looks as though it could have been one or two or even all of the people within the car may have been the victims, may have been struck by shots. We don't know. Already police cars converging on Parkland from every angle, from every point toward the emergency room of Parkland Hospital. The policeman says, no, you cannot come in here. You cannot come in here. We'll let nobody else in. It was definitely the president's car. We can see the first lady's paint suit. And just now we've received reports here at Parkland that Governor Connolly was shot in the upper left chest. And the first unconfirmed reports say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the president was hit in the head. The president's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was not hurt. She walked into the hospital at her husband's stretcher side. President Kennedy has been given a blood transfusion at Parkland Hospital here in Dallas in an effort to save his life. The president of the United States is dead. I have just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. He and another priest tell me that the pair of men have just administered the last rites of the Catholic Church to President Kennedy. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The president is dead. Grown men, Secret Service men standing by the emergency room, tears streaming down their face. There's only one word to describe the picture here, and that's grief and much of it. Already, arrangements for swearing in the new president are being made. President Kennedy's body is to be placed aboard Air Force One. 
And that is the um, the film that was made by the White House Naval Photographic Center is called The Last Two Days. And uh, William Pepper is an American lawyer for, uh, based in New York City, noted for uh, his many books on the culpability uh, or he believes lack of culpability and innocence of James Earl Ray in the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's the author of numerous books, including An Act of State, The Plot to Kill King, Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King, and uh, Act of, uh, again, Act of State. And uh, he's working on a book right now on what he says was the assassination of Franklin Roosevelt and not a natural death. That book is in the writing stage. WBAI spoke to Bill Pepper, who is a good friend of the station and of many of the producers at WBAI. And he put the Kennedy assassination in context. We began the conversation talking about the recent revelations that the men put in jail for the uh, murder of assassination of Malcolm X were found innocent because the government withheld evidence. And then we go on to talk about the Kennedy assassination and what the country might have been like if John F. Kennedy had not been killed. It's obviously important in the whole realm of assassinations, but less important to continue to cover up than the assassination of John Kennedy, which was orchestrated by the ruling forces of the society. Malcolm's murder was largely organized internally by Hoover using his plant inside of the Nation of Islam, with whom Malcolm had become very, uh, very much unconscionable. And the Nation of Islam, who was, which is was also well funded by H. L. Hunt, who is H. L. Hunt, who was the wealthiest man in America. He was very close to Hoover, and he was the number one oil man in America. For And the Hunts still are a very powerful family in Texas. He entertained uh, just about everyone on the right wing that needed entertaining. The murder of Malcolm was incidental to, to all of his activity, all of his anti-government activity, but, his, but also his feud within the nation of Islam. Kennedy really was even more so than his brother at the time, arguing against a militaristic approach to the whole Cuban thing, if possible. Jack Kennedy was a very naive, almost semi-adolescent young man who had a vision of America that he wanted to fulfill and he wanted to help fulfill. He became increasingly shocked and startled at the proposed military tactics and intelligence operations. He often thought that those people were out of their minds because they wanted to go contrary to the American promise that he subscribed to ever since childhood. He was growing in knowledge and information and power. He simply got to the point where he was no longer tolerable. If he had lived, what would have happened? America would have become a far less militaristic state. I think he would have tried to develop rapprochements with the conventional allies. I think eventually he would have opened the doors for discussions with Fidel Castro. The Cuban foreign policy would have been vastly different than it emerged. So I think we would have had a much more humanistic society. 
and uh, as a result of the growing intelligence of an awareness of John Kennedy of the enemies of that type of development yeah. inside the power forces of America. These people, the Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you seem to imply there was a linkage between all of these. There's no question. They envisioned America that was emerging as a, a multi-ethnic society with full rights at the ballot box as well as in government. They all were aware of what happened from 1619 onward, the initial enslavement of 20 to 30 uh, Africans, which led to 12 and a half million slaves. There would have been a movement toward reparation. He was going to affect changes himself. How does that affect today? Continuation of the Cold War mentality, which began with the death of Roosevelt on April 12, 1945. It's never stopped. It's had various impediments along the way and various roadblocks and various uh, objections and objectors. People like Dwight Eisenhower, for example, not sufficiently cogent or powerful enough to do what has to be done. And it has never stopped. We're realizing the end of democracy in America now as we live in this country. And that's William Pepper. He's the author of An Act of State, The Plot to Kill King, and Orders to Kill the Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King. All of those are available on uh, various sources that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And finally, a committee investigating the January 6th United States Capitol insurrection issued subpoenas today to five more individuals, including former President Donald Trump's ally Roger Stone and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. As lawmakers deepen their probe of the rallies that preceded the deadly attacks, the subpoenas include demands for documents and testimony from Stone, Stone and Jones, as well as three people accused of organizing and promoting the two rallies that took place on January 6th. They are the latest in a wide net. The House panel is cast in an effort to investigate the deadly day when a group of Trump supporters fueled by his false claims of a stolen election, brutally assaulted police and smashed their way into the Capitol to interrupt the certification of Democratic Joe Biden's victory. And that's some of the news for Monday, November 22nd, 2021. The news of producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for joining us. And I want to give a great shout out to our wonderful program director. She is the best program director we've had at WBAI in 20 years. All praise to the great Linda Perry. Thank you so much for your hard work, Linda. 